Welcome to Great Comedic Minds by Kara Robertson, a podcast where we meet some of the greatest comedic creators of our time and find out their real stories. From your favorite TV shows, movies, and live stand-up, we interview the storytellers and joke writers who have entertained us for years to find out exactly how and why they do it. And now, here's your host, Kara Robinson. Uh, I'm here with Michael Price. He is a Emmy and Writers Guild Award winner who has written on The Simpsons. And his work also includes Nickelodeon's Our Real Monsters, Teen Angel, Hercules, Teacher's Pet, The Simpsons Movie, the Lego Star Wars TV specials, The Yoda Chronicles, and he's co-created, written, and the executive producer for the hit Netflix show F is for Family, along with Bill Burr. Uh, he won an Emmy in 2008 for Outstanding Animated Programming Less Than an Hour. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Michael. Sure, I'm so happy to be here. Very, we're very grateful to have you. It's wonderful. Um, so that's obviously, I didn't even name all of your accolades there because the list is too long. Um, congratulations on your career so far. Thank you. And thanks for uh, answering some questions for us. Um, so you grew up in South Plainfield, New Jersey. That um, is correct. Yes, that's my hometown. So what sort of shows did you watch? Oh, my God. Um, mostly I loved comedy, of course. Uh, so I'm so glad I got into it. Uh, I grew up at a time when... Um, again, pre-cable, pre-streaming, where there were three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And then there were, New York had several smaller independent stations and they would play reruns of things. So they would, they would play all the reruns of all the old network shows that are still on reruns a lot now, like the Honeymooners and Gilligan's Island and all that stuff. And also cartoons, which I really loved. Uh, my favorite thing probably growing up as a kid was watching cartoons, specifically Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers cartoons. Uh, I was a, a snob for those. <laughs> I still am kind of, because uh, then the other channel would show Tom and Jerry and I'd be like, Tom and Jerry, I don't like Tom and Jerry. But, you know, for me, like Bugs Bunny was the, the cream of the crop. So I watched that every single day. It would be on five days a week. Uh, right after I got out of school, I'd come home from school and turn on the TV and Bugs Bunny would be on. Would you say um, any of that influenced you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I mean, well, it, it made me just fall in love with it all, fall in love with 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 entertainment, with cartoons, with movies, because those, those cartoons had references to things that were going on when they were being made in the 1940s and 50s. So they'd make references to all the Hollywood movie stars. So I really got into that and... I just became an obsessive fan of old movies and old Hollywood. Uh, so now to be living in Los Angeles and working more or less in Hollywood is just a huge dream that I never thought would be could be real. Um, and just as far as the influence of comedy, of humor, absolutely. I, timing and um, I don't know. I, I can't. All I can know is I just just absorbed it all and 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 loved it all. So then you went to uh, university, um, you did a BA in theatre arts at Montclair State University and then a Master of Fine Arts. So um, yeah, how was your time at uni? Well, uh, it was fun. Uh, yeah, I was a theatre major, so um, which I loved. I loved acting um, and uh, it was just the first time I felt like I was suddenly around people that were like me with similar references and and so I just enjoyed every single minute of it to the point where I conspired more or less passively aggressively to keep going <laughs> to stay in college as long as I could, which meant doing an extra half a year. After, normally, if uh, undergraduate education would be four years, but I did 
four and a half years. And then I went to graduate school for another three years. That's where I went to Tulane University. Um, it was all a way of prolonging <laughs> the fun of being in college and of working on things and be doing plays. And, and, and when I went to graduate school, it was for directing. So I learned to be a theater director. And that's, I think, where most of, in terms of what I ended up, did, ended up doing, uh, somewhat on The Simpsons, but more specifically on Ephesus for Family as the, the main producer or showrunner was so much of what I learned as uh, directing a production because it was sort of um, coordinating all the various elements and talking to the designers and directing the actors and working on that. Like that, th those skills definitely came into, came into play years later when I became a showrunner of a TV show. Would you say that theatre, as opposed to, say, you went to university and you were doing actual show, like shows and animation, uh, with that theatre background, has that helped you? Absolutely. I mean, well, there was no such thing when I was going to school. There, there really wasn't much of a TV major at, at my college. There was, but it was more about the ins and outs of, of learning how to run video and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't, and they were teaching writing. I didn't know, I really didn't know what writing was or how it worked. Uh, I just knew that I liked it. I loved watching TV. I loved watching old shows. So um, the theater background, the performing element of it um, definitely influenced me in terms of that. And, and then um, what really got me involved in doing what I do now was also came from performing, but it came from performing comedy, from doing um, improv and sketch comedy, which I did a little bit later after I was finished with all my college stuff. I started get, started doing that. And that's what really sort of set me on this path to becoming doing what I do now. Was that the news? Is that your referring? Well, the news was my first ever job, uh, paying job <laughs> of almost any kind. It was my first paying job of anything that was involved in this, in, in writing or being creative. I had all, all I had all kinds of crazy other survival jobs, but um, no, no. This was a group in Los, in uh, New York called Gotham City Improv, and they were a New York. Um, offshoot of the group here in Los Angeles called the Groundlings, and the Groundlings were the comedy improv comedy theater that started the careers of so many people that went on to be big stars on Saturday Night Live, like Will Ferrell and John Lovitz and um, Will Forte, and a, a lot of people in that school. So um, it was a thing where you took these classes and you did improv games and fool around, but then it also taught you to take some stuff that maybe you discovered while you were doing an improv and then go home and write a scene about it or you know turn it was it was improv geared toward teaching you how to write sketches Saturday Night Live style sketches so um that was great and then we performed them every week at a nightclub in New York every Saturday night we would we had a set show but we'd have new sketches rotating in and out and do some improv but mostly it was writing so it was teaching me how to be a writer and and it was great Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think skit shows were kind of, they were in vogue at that time. There was one, there was, they're in Australia as well. And for those at home, the news was, um, it was short skits, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really interesting because it was started by the, the producer of it was a, a, a wonderful man named Michael Wilson who had worked on Saturday Night Live. So it was, it was sort of, it was basically a half an hour show in the format of a Saturday Night Live sketch comedy show. That was then was was uh, set and aired uh, five nights a week on TV. So we were we put together a half hour SNL style sketch show that we ended up 
taping over the course of a couple of weeks, but we, we wrote, wrote and wrote and wrote. So when I got that job, suddenly I went from doing nothing to doing everything to just writing everything I could think of. And it was an incredibly wonderful time. And I met a lot of great writers who I'm still close friends with. And a lot of, for a lot of us, it was our first jobs and it was very low budget and the money wasn't great, but it was great to me. It was more money than I'd ever made in my life, but it was beyond that. It was just so exciting that suddenly here I was, I was finally doing what I wanted to do. And it was incredibly fun. Talk about, um, I think that's a massive question when I ask people what they want to know. How did you get that first job? Well, um, what happened was that going back to the improv theater I was involved in, uh, I that was a large group of us, around seven or eight of us were all in that group together. But then there was one particular person who I really hit it off with as terms of our same sensibility. And we became writing partners and performing partners. And we put together a two-person show of sketches about a man and a woman um, dating and, and the, you know, the stupidities of what it's like being out there dating and starting a relationship. And we turned it into kind of an evening that got some people interested in us and thought we were funny and thought we were like a team, like a comedy team. So they encouraged us to come out to Los Angeles and, we did, and then we got put up and performed around Los Angeles. And from that, we got an agent, which is the hardest thing to do. But that was the first thing that happened was we got an agent. And this agent was pretty good, and he helped us get out there and get some meetings at various places. Um, but nothing quite came of it, but but I had the agent. And by that time, we saw that the two-person team wasn't quite working out for both of us, so we went our separate ways, and she was more focused on – she was a really great performer – so she really wanted to focus more on performing and I enjoyed the writing better. And I, I thought writing was going to be better for me than performing. So I just wrote everything I could and you write what's called sample material or spec material, which is um, back in those days, it was more like you take a show that was on TV, a current show and write a sample episode of it. And that's, that's what your agent would then send to people who were looking to hire, hire you for a, for a job. So I had a bunch of those, and I also had some sketches, a packet of around seven or eight sketches that I had written that became my sample sketch material. And that's what got me hired on that show, is that uh, I was cheap. <laughs> I wasn't in the union yet. So this was a non-Writers Guild union show. So I, I, I ticked off all the boxes in that way. But also, he liked me. He liked my stuff. And um, I'll never forget that first meeting. I went in to have this meeting, because I had been knocking my head against the wall for a while, and nothing was coming and I really wasn't getting much going on. I had all these crazy jobs that were stressing me out. And uh, I was driving a taxi cab. That was my survival job at the time. I drove a taxi cab in, in Hollywood. And um, my agent said, you have this meeting for this show and go go there. And I had the meeting and I was all excited. And, and I thought I had a pitch idea. So I had all these ideas ready to go. But uh, Michael in the meeting just basically spent the, most of the meeting talking about what the show was like and and basically selling it to me, like telling me how good it was going to be. <laughs> and at the end of it, he says, well, I read your stuff. I read your material. It's really funny. Uh, we start on next Wednesday. Do you want to do it? And I was, yes, I would, you know. And so uh, that's how I got on there. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that moment. That's a great, uh, that's a great story. Um, so then you did uh, Our Real Monsters. So now you're moving into more kid shows. So yes. what was, that was would have been a transition going from adult sort of style humor um, to trying to uh, entertain children. Yeah. Although, although I would say that show was really fun 
that show had an adult sensibility in a way. It certainly was a a Nickelodeon and aimed at kids, but the writers were all really funny comedy writers. And so, you know, we couldn't be uh, R-rated or anything like that. But I mean, the style of humor, I thought, was fairly sophisticated and and fun. Uh, And that's another thing that came about because one of the writers I met on the other show, on the news, was a guy named David Litt, who, um, when the the news ended, he called me and said, he already had this job lined up on real monsters uh, on staff and they had certain scripts that were written by the staff writers but certain scripts that they needed to be written by outside writers or freelance writers so he called me and said would you want to come in and meet about these and so i did and that's how i got that from meeting david on on the news and that's often what happens is that you'll get a job and if you do a good enough job and you get along with people you know you you end up meeting someone who'll help you get the next step or I'll help someone else get the next step and that's what in, that's what got me in there but I will say this that like I was so excited to work in animation because as I said before I loved cartoons I loved animation so it was very fun did you come up with the the show itself is a concept of some monsters who um they go to scare school and they have to go and scare children yes which is very similar when I first saw monsters university of I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit not too it's different from Monsters, Inc. or Monsters University. I wasn't around for either of those, so I, I don't know. Uh, I guess there's, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but uh, it, there certainly is a similarity, I would say, in, in, terms, of, uh, in terms of the two things. Um, in um, At This for Family, they come out of the, there's two of the characters that um, have a washing machine there. Is that a, a link to the two? Oh no no no! That's funny. No, that was just a washing machine out in the uh, out in the no. woods, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we we made that joke up that these two kids are the two kind of feral uh, kids who don't have a home, or we don't know what's going on with them. And and uh, that washing machine was always there. I grew up in, not too far from a woods, similar to that, where back in those days people would just dump their junk in the in the woods so we we put that in that there was a washing machine there and then i remember writing that scene we like we need in for the scene so someone pitched what if the kid just says i'm going home and he climbs into the washing machine and uh it just made us all super laugh really hard but it had nothing to do with real monsters it was just because the monsters um come out of the washing machine oh definitely yeah they do okay so let's talk about simpsons you've you've been writing for for around 20 years yes yeah yes so uh, what's that experience been like Oh my God, it's been the greatest, the greatest thing ever. Uh, I remember when it, Simpsons first came on it was around the same time that I was start getting starting getting into doing comedy and, and doing improv. And I was a member of this improv group, and we were all hanging out one night in New York at this guy's place. And uh, and he's like, "I gotta go. I gotta go watch The Simpsons because it was Sunday night and it was eight o'clock." And so. Um, we all went back to his apartment and we watched the show and it was one of the first, one of the first five or six episodes. Um, and we were, even then it was like, this is the thing, this is the show. This is the greatest show. This is going to be the big, biggest thing ever at, at episode seven or eight that was already known how great it was. So um, in the following years, as I started my career, I certainly was aware of it. It was on all the time. It was just this giant hit. Uh, and then um, to be, asked to be on the writing staff was an unbelievable um great it was great i mean that came about i got the job it came about another one of those things like i mentioned before with real monsters was that one of my first jobs uh further on in my career around 1996 was on a show that was on an old network 
called the UPN network and it was called homeboys in outer space. And it was a very silly, goofy kind of comedy show, kind of a satire or parody of space shows. And, um, anyway, two of the writers on that show who were consulting producers, meaning they didn't work full time, but they only worked one or two days a week were Al Jean and Mike Reese from the Simpsons. Um, so they, they met me there. We got along uh, they remembered me and they hired me for a show they created the next year that was called uh, Teen Angel. And then we worked together again on some other things. And so now go to a few years later when they go back to The Simpsons and then Al is now running The Simpsons. And I was working on another show that was about to get canceled. And I got a phone call kind of out of the blue and it was Al. I'd, sp I'd spoken to him like maybe a couple of months earlier. We kept in touch. But um, he said we have an opening at the Simpsons. Would you like to join the Simpsons? <laughs> I was, I was first of all, so happy to have a job because this life sometimes is tricky because you, you work on shows that get canceled that don't last or so, but then to have a job on the Simpsons, the greatest show in the history of TV, not just from a quality standpoint, which I think it is, but also just from, from a job standpoint, from a personal standpoint, knowing that I can have a little bit of security now that, I mean, no one, no one thought that it would be still on 20 years later, but, um, but we thought like, oh, I, I think I got a job now for the next couple of years. So I was thrilled. Was there a lot of pressure because the show was already, as you said, quite well established and known? Personal pressure on me, yes. I mean, only because here I was walking into this writer's room full of people that I greatly admired, and um, I didn't know any of them. I only knew Al. Uh, and I had met one other guy before, Mark Wilmore, who had, had been a writer on another show I'd worked on, the the the, um, the PJs. Uh, I knew Alan, I knew Mike, and Mike. by this point, Mike Reese was just a one-day-a-week consulting, and Al was running it. So I walked into this room with all these other people who I greatly admired, who I knew about, who I'd read about, I knew what, I knew what the show was. Um, it was hugely intimidating, um, and it took me, I'd say, several months of being in the room to, first of all, to be, to feel like, all right, I know these people and, you know, I get along with them and they like me enough, whatever. That was the first part. Then the second part was just to know the show well enough to be able to feel confident to pitch a joke, a Homer joke or a Marge joke, whatever. And, and you know, you know, it might not get in, but hopefully it does, but it's still sort of feeling it out and figuring out like who these characters are. And I'll say this too, like, like I said, I, I watched the show, I knew the show, but I didn't, wasn't intimately, uh, close to it so there were certain characters that I didn't know who they were like side characters like this Gil you know the Gil character and um, there were a couple other ones that in my first day there if someone mentioned like what if it was Gil and I just had to kind of sit there and go like this and in, my, in the back of my head I'm like who's that you know so I had to sort of figure it out without I didn't want to out myself as not knowing anything but uh, yeah, so it took a while to, to learn everybody, to learn the show, to learn the characters and to be able to feel like, okay, now I know what I'm doing. That took a, almost a year, I'd say. By the time, by the end of my first year, I felt like, okay, I, I think I know what I'm doing now. And they gave you the room to do that, obviously. Like, yeah. yeah well, it helped because it's a big staff. It's a large staff. So there, there could be days where, uh, you know, I could just sort of sit there and, and, lurk in a way and sort of okay get my you know if it was me and like three other people writing the simpsons at that point I, it might have been a little more it was certainly intimidating enough but 
it helped that it was a big staff and everybody was so great. Um, so F is for family. I had a lot of questions I put um, to a fan group about that. Oh, great. So, um, so obviously people want to know how you met Bill Burr. Yeah, you know, we're coming up on um, today's date is the 11th of February. And I just looked at my old notes. Um, the 13th is the 10 year anniversary of the day I met Bill, Bill Burr in, in 2012. Uh, and it came about because Bill had long done these stories in his stand-up act about his childhood, about his dad and all these things. And he had always wanted some way to get more out of it, to promote, to produce them in some way. He had often thought about doing small shorts, kind of like the original Simpsons shorts, but he never did that. So anyway, he, he had a meeting with uh, Vince Vaughn and his producing partner, Peter Billingsley, and they were talking about things they could do together. And they mentioned this idea of, he mentioned the little animations and they said, well, what if we expanded it and made it into an animated series? And he was excited about that. And um, so the beginning of it was sort of a standard kind of businessy thing, which is that uh, their agency was the same agency that I'm at, which is called CAA. So they went to the CAA agents, they said like, we need we need some writers who know animation who would be interested in working with Bill Burr and developing an animated series. So my agents thought of me and and uh, mentioned The Simpsons, and then uh, I think Bill and Peter were like, "Oh, The Simpsons, that's good." And I, I'd met Peter once before on something else. So um, anyway, they brought me in. I had a meeting, and that meeting, which is ten years ago, coming up, was mostly just sort of get to know each other and and. Um, and for me and Bill to see if we got along. And, and I told some of my stories about my childhood, about my dad, about my neighborhood. And we had a very similar frame of reference about what that meant and what it was like, the difference between being a kid back then and now. And, and we hit it off. And after a little while, uh, they came back and said that Bill wanted to work with me on it. And that's how we ended up starting it. Uh, some of the themes in it, it's, I would find it a challenge that it's a comedy um, show. And um, some of the con comedy can be a little bit, it's not realistic, it goes out there. But at the same time, it's got some very dark themes. Sure. Was that difficult to um, work the two together? No, I think that was what we got, got excited about. You know, that was the thing that made, made us want to do it was that, um, well, we didn't, at first we didn't know we were going to do it for Netflix. Um, Netflix really wasn't doing much at the time when we first started doing this. Um, but we knew that we wanted it to be edgy. We knew that we wanted it to be compatible with Bill, Bill's style of stand-up, his observations about the world. And um, what really hit on us was, was telling a story through animation, the kind of show that would normally maybe be a little lighter, um, but then be able to really handle, tackle some real things, some real issues about this character, the main character, Frank, his anger and and also because we were going through this lens of we were in 20, the, the, you know, the 2010s, looking back at the 1970s, making uh, satirical points about how terrible things were back then in terms of racism and sexism and, and, and parental bullying and all that. And it was really fun. That, that, that's exciting. That's what made us excited about doing the show. Because yeah, as you said, it's set in the 70s. Was there challenges with that where you um, sort of had to adapt you know, your life as you know it now with the technology we have and how things are and, um, you know, you have to get rid of that and go back to the 70s in that way without filling it with things like stereotypes. And Right. We, we were very careful not to do that too much. There was a show that was a very popular show uh, here in the United States um, 
that aired in the 90s called That 70s Show. And it starred Ashton Kutcher and Topher Grace and uh, some other people. And Kurtwood Smith, who ended up being on our show, was the dad on that show. Um, and as successful as that was, we felt that that show was leaned in too much to the kind of stereotype of the 70s where everybody was wearing disco boots and everyone had like the puka shells. And, you know, that was that show. We wanted to be more realistic, a little more gritty and, and sort of play the 70s that we remembered. It helped that Bill and I both grew up like we were kids then. So we remembered it. But there was a time, especially in the United States, those early 70s were was a time of um, great economic trouble. There was huge inflation. There was gas shortages. You know, so we really wanted just to sit hit on that and not not just lean into everybody discoing, you know, and listening to Led Zeppelin. So it was great. It was really fun, and it was fun to remember that. And we also wanted to be careful not to be too outside of it. Like like one of the things that um, like that opening the opening scene of the very first episode was one that I I pitched, and it more or less came away came out the way I pitched it, which was that, and it happened to us a lot when I was growing up where we'd be sitting down to dinner and the phone would ring. And this was a time before answering machines, before caller ID, before all that stuff. So you literally had no idea who was calling. And so it was a big deal of like, uh, especially at dinner time, uh, should I answer the phone or not? And so it was a real thing. Um, and it turned out to be in that scene, you know, he answers the phone and it's a guy trying to sell him something and he loses his mind and screams at the guy. Um, which happened a lot in our house. My dad wouldn't scream at the guy, but it would be someone trying to sell something or a wrong number or whatever. And it would be like, oh, my mother would be so upset. Oh, every time we sit down to dinner, the phone ring. You know, so I wanted to portray that scene. But the thing that we didn't do was to say, and we could have, would have been like, like if she had said like, well, I, I don't know who it is. Who is it? And he goes, I don't know. It's not like there's some magic machine that can tell me who it is. Like that's the kind of, outside the meta commentary that we never we tried to never do so okay. that was the one thing we kept our we kept our we wanted to portray the people living in the 70s unaware that they're in a show that's on netflix in 2016 or 2017 just just presenting it the way it was more or less without too much outside commentary uh people wanted to know what we know it's based mostly on bill burr's childhood um is there any specific ones that are from yours oh sure yeah well i mean storylines uh, like, for instance, like the scene you described came directly from my life, although a lot of people had that same experience. But in that same episode, uh, the first episode, when they get the new color television and the kid puts the magnet on it and it destroys it, that happened in my family. My brother did that. Um, he didn't, he did it quite by accident. Um, he, he came home from school with a magnet and he just put like his school books down or something on the TV and the magnet was there. And then it destroyed the TV. <laughs> so that happened. I mean, so certain story elements did happen, but more characters, I'd say. So um, I'd say that, yeah, Frank is, is largely like, I'd say it's like 60, 40 or 70, 30 Frank's dad, my dad, the rest of the, I mean, Bill's dad, my dad, um, the other writers certainly brought their elements of their family upbringing. But what I think I really brought in was sort of the building the world out and, and the neighbors on the street, are all most of them are based on my actual neighbors growing up in my little town. So um, Goomer, who's the creepy, the creepy neighbor. We had a creepy neighbor. Uh, his name started with G, but it wasn't Goomer, who did a lot of the same things that he does. Like he would walk his dog and use his dog walking as a pretext to kind of peek in everybody's window and things like that. We exaggerated and made him a super creep. 
possible serial killer. <laughs> you know, this guy wasn't like that, but things like that. And one of the one of our neighbors was Babe, was a man they called Babe, an Italian man, things like that. And then the character that Sam Rockwell plays, Vic, was a, a man named Vic, who was my best friend's dad, who he lived on the next street over. But the dynamic was very similar in that my dad was a blue collar worker. He worked for a construction company. And this guy, Vic, worked for a record company. Uh, uh, he worked for Capitol Records. And so he knew like he he knew some people from the show business. And so when that thing where Vic talks about how he met the four tops and everything that was based on that. Um, he didn't look like this guy at all. He was an Italian man. He wasn't, you know, buff, cool. And he was married with kids. But but to me, I was like idolizing him because like, wow, he works in New York City. He knows he's met the Beatles or whatever, you know, and my dad would resent him for that. You know, so that that dynamic between Frank and Vic was based on my dad, my dad's feeling about the real Vic. The neighbors are fantastic. I think the thing about Goomer being so creepy, but for some reason we still all like him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, the last character that is a direct pull from my life, and he's my favorite character on the show, aside from Frank, is Bob Pogo, uh, played by the great Dave Keckner, who when I was in college, I worked at a, uh, a job and um, at an auto body, an auto repair place. And our boss was a big heavy guy who smoked all the time and ate horrible sandwiches and his name was bob pogo <laughs> so <laughs> that was his nickname his real name was something else like like our guy's name is pogrohovich his name was what something else i forget what it was but he was very similar so um uh, and again for for animation's sake we made him you know job of the hut you know so this guy was not quite that but he was pretty extreme in that way and he was pretty nasty boss and so uh but he's he he's a direct pull for, and from that from that guy. Final question about uh, your shows and writing. Um, I think the number one thing people would like to know: what is your big thing you'd want to tell writers just starting out? Well, stick to it. Write what you love. Write what you know about. You know, for me, um, Episode Family came about. I mean, it was already came about after I'd already you know had had a little bit of a career, but um, I think it's the only thing I've ever done over the course of my career. I've had a chance to do some pilots or write some other things. Um, but I think there's a reason, the reason why it was the one that got all the way through and got made certainly Bill Burr, like huge credit to Bill, of course, and everyone else who worked on it. But for me, it was like, that's the one that I really knew the most that I was personally had a personal thing in it, you know, and it meant so much to me. So even if you're writing, if you want to write like a Star Wars or a space thing or something, you know, or, or something in the bottom of the ocean, find find a personal connection to it, something that means something to you. Uh, and also, I would say, just stick with it. Um, it really helped me when I first moved out to Los Angeles um, to know that I had really it was kind of be it was kind of an all or nothing proposition for me, where. I came out here, I sold everything I owned back east, put everything in a car, came out, was living in a crappy apartment and was working, driving a taxi cab. But I had I had a, a, a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, knowing that there was something I could do. I had an agent and and I just stuck with it and I had no other fallback. I really had no plan B. My plan B was going to be I don't know, either to die <laughs> or to or to come back. The one thing I wouldn't do, the only thing I didn't want to ever do was have to go back 
after I'd left with like, hey, go, go on, go get him, you know, go to Hollywood, you know, they didn't have to come driving back and say, I didn't, it didn't work out. And now I'm going to go uh, work some other job. You know, I, I, had not, I it was either going to be all or nothing. So I'm, I'm glad that it worked out. But that helped me help me stick through some hard times where uh, it was a lot of rejection, a lot of failure. And I could have given up, but I, I, I couldn't have either. He basically didn't want to be like Frank, who gave up. We didn't give up, but he chose not to be a pilot for the sake of his family. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The game, um, if you're happy to play it. Um, sure, of so course. I've done some research. Um, it's not necessarily from the 70s. It could be from uh, earlier times about okay. parenting from the past. Okay. And I found books. that had to be popular books, so it couldn't be things that weren't mainstream. Um, and there's advice to mothers. In particular, it could be for fathers too, but I think back then it's mostly the mothers. I want you to tell me if it's true or false, or if I've just made it up. Okay, all okay. right. Uh, question one: So, after a child's first birthday, they should be introduced to tea and coffee. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say that's false. Um, that is true. <laughs> it's from the '60s, so it's not even that long ago. Uh, wow. Yeah, Bringing Up Babies by Dr. Walter Sackett. So that was a popular book back then. Um, uh, must have been a lot of babies running around all jacked up on caffeine then in those yeah. days. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't as strong back then, but they were saying to get them off milk and start putting them onto fruit and juice, soup, okay. water. Yeah. Um, second question. Uh, during pregnancy, it's okay to smoke up to 10 cigarettes a day. <laughs> I would say based on my knowledge of when, I, when we learned we're up as a family, that is true. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> that one's from a medical textbook that they used to use back then called Williams. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my mother smoked uh, all the way through pregnancies of my brother and myself, and then um, she stopped after that. They knew it caused low birth weight, but, but they didn't care about that. <laughs> Children should be given a sprightly meal of fish, vegetables, prawns, coconut milk, and four kinds of rice three times a day in order to remain strong and malleable. Uh, I'm just going to guess that's false. Yeah, that's false. That's um, <laughs> the stew that Principal Skinner described oh. <laughs> in Team Homer Season 7. Oh, that's um, funny. Pregnant mothers should avoid thinking of ugly people. <laughs> I have to imagine that's a funny thing, a false thing from some other show or something. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's from the 20s. It's called Searchlights on Health by B.G. Jeff Ferris and J.L. Nichols. Well, maybe um, if I ever do a show like a prequel to Episode Family set in the 1920s, we'll, uh, we'll use that then. <laughs> and the last one, a child can learn more in an airport than they can in any school. <laughs> I think that's probably true. That one is Homer Simpson again. You know? Oh, that's funny. I think it's, it may not be, a, it may, Homer may have said that, but I think that's a a pretty good observation. <laughs> I think it's true too. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the game. Thank you very much for joining sure. us this morning. I really appreciate your time. I'm sure many people are going to be very grateful to hear your wisdom and um, yeah, appreciate you sharing your um, insights. Um, congratulations again on uh, all of your success in your shows. Oh, thank you so much, Kara. Thank you. Such a nice uh, thing to be on and talk to you and thank you. Thank you for joining us on a great episode of Great Comedic Minds. We'll be back next week, so be sure to tune in. Also, like, share, subscribe to the channel, and be sure to follow Carl Robertson on Instagram.